The thing that I bring to the table is, first of all, I my whole business career was one giant plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. And, and I have written a bunch of novels, and I read almost only novels. And I, I think fiction is such a great way to sort of hook into people's imagination. It's a great way to learn. And what I bring to the table is the experience of writing fiction, but also the experience of the nitty-gritty experience of having a whole bunch of operating roles, not operating in your sense of, <laughs> of the word, but sort of nitty-gritty sales operations, business operations, CEO roles. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Nocturnists. Hey there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And today I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Kim Scott. Kim is the author of many novels and books. There are two you may know. One is called Just Work, and the other is called Radical Candor. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. She's done many things, and you know, a lot started in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee, and, well, by doing Model UN. Kim and I really get into her leadership, stories that have built her and her leadership and her sensitivity, anti-bullying, inclusivity, and more. Let's get to the conversation. What question have you been dying to answer and no one has asked you it? You know what? Nobody ever asks me... I think because they're being polite. But what right, Kim, did you have to write Just Work? <laughs> and because it's something I really struggled with. As, as a white woman, I felt like on the one hand, I sort of had to write the book. And also, I felt like I had no right to write the book. And that was tricky as, as I was writing. And I think in some senses, it, it kind of made me lose my voice as I was writing the book. And in fact, I'm doing a rewrite of the book for the paperback in, in which I try to regain my voice because I was so conflicted with whether I even had the right to be speaking up on this topic or whether I had to. It is kismet that you and I are recording today because actually one of my questions I prepared was the extent to which you have gotten pushback or people have protested the fact that you, as a white woman, wrote this book because, you know, the whole feminist movement and is considered white feminist. And there's a lot of it was not inclusive movement. And there's a lot of pushback on that. And I actually wondered if one of the reasons why you wrote that book, because some people write books as a way of dealing with negative consequences. They had a bad episode at work. It's a mea culpa. And I wondered if you wrote that book because of something that had happened to you, with you, as a leader in the workplace, and you were trying to sort of correct? Yes, I think, I mean, a big part of why I wrote the book, I think I told this story in the book, I, I was giving a radical candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco. 
And the CEO of that company, she pulled me aside after I gave the talk and she said, I'm I'm excited to roll this out, Kim. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as a black woman, when she gave even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed immediately with the angry black woman stereotype. And I, I knew this was true. And I realized that I just I hadn't wrestled enough in radical candor with how often bias, prejudice, and bullying taint people's ability to both give and receive feedback. And so that was kind of the the kernel of it. I would say another moment that caused me to write the book happened when Susan Fowler wrote her her memo, her blog post about what had happened to her at Uber. And I remember reading it and thinking, gosh, she's a lot younger than I am. She's a lot more vulnerable than I am. And I've had stuff happen and I've, I've never talked about it publicly. And uh, I felt bad about it. And I sort of also felt like, well, it, if I'm not free now uh, to talk about it, I'll never be free. So, so it's time to start writing. Yeah. What has happened that you want to share the listeners? You know, it's funny. So when I started out, well, when what I was thinking about when I was reading Susan Fowler's blog post was a time when when I was working at a big tech company and my boss pulled me aside and sort of told me that I was doing great work, but my jeans weren't quite tight enough. He didn't put it exactly like that. But then he went out and had someone purchase for me the tightest pair of pants I had ever owned. And then when I didn't wear those pants, uh, because I couldn't, I mean, they gave me a stomach ache in addition to making me feel uncomfortable, you know, how tight pants do. Uh, Then he pulled me aside and he said, I wonder, you know, some of your colleagues don't like you. And I wonder if you're suffering from the competence likability bias or if you're just not likable. And then he thought about it for a moment. And this was on Valentine's Day, by the way. You can't make this stuff up. And he, he thought about it for a moment. And he decided, no, the problem was that I was truly not likable. <laughs> and so he asked me to go make a nice. And I was tempted to quit at that moment. But I really liked the job. I liked my colleagues. And so I just decided to sort of keep on plugging. And then a few months later, he he pulls me into his office and he says, I think I have the solution to your likability problem. (laughs) You know, as if it's like, in my mind, it was his job as a leader to, to create an environment in which one person wouldn't suffer from biases instead of telling me how to tiptoe through the tulips of other people's biases. But anyway, I think I have the solution to your likability problem, he says. I said, oh, do tell. And he said, I'm going to demote you, and then people won't be so jealous <laughs> of you. And at this point, I've had it. And I, three weeks later, quit. And I told him, and he was really surprised that I had quit, that I had responded the way I did. So anyway, that was that was the story that I had in mind. But when I sat down to write this book, I thought, oh, I don't have very, you know, I have that story, but I don't have very many stories. So I'm going to have to interview a bunch of people. And then as I started writing, I realized, oh my gosh, I have 
I have 18 books worth of stories. <laughs> and you're nodding. I'm sure you also have 18 books worth of stories. And as my husband was reading the book, as I was writing it, his jaw would be on the table. He'd say, you know, does this stuff happen to every woman? Absolutely, it does. And it's not only to women that this stuff happens. It happens to everyone who's underrepresented along any dimension, not only gender. And it's so important to build solidarity between all of us who are experiencing this nonsense that is not productive for anyone. There is so much that you shared that just uh, leads me to have more questions. And also, I resonate with everything you just shared. Thank you for sharing it. Number one, do you want to name names? So I wrestled with this a bunch, in, uh, and I'm not sure I made the right decision. So I'll explain to you my logic, and then you can tell me if, if you think I'm wrong. I really do walk the talk on radical candor, so tell me uh, if you think I'm wrong. I decided in the book not to name names. The most important reason is that I think that these issues are sort of systemic. They happen to all of us. And my goal in writing the book was to figure out what we could do to change the system. And I think it's so, it's kind of boring to think about systems, and it's really fun to think about villains. And I didn't want this to be a book about specific, quote unquote, villains. And most of the people who did, like this, my boss who did that to me, he's not a villain, actually. He was, he was kind of clueless. But uh, but but I don't think it would make the world a better place to name his name. But I do think it'll make the world a better place to tell the story and to use this, the emotional engagement with the story to explain a framework and then to sort of start to suggest tactics so that we can focus on fixing the problem instead of identifying villains. Because the other thing I think that I did in the book was to point out the number of times when I was the person who caused harm. I was the villain. And and I think as a white woman, it was maybe I was in a good position to do that because being white, I, you know, I have my own set of biases. I think I've mostly questioned my prejudices, but I've had, that's been a journey. And I've bullied people. And it's a little bit safer for me as a, as a, woman to share those stories of me being the culprit than it would be if I were a man. So anyway, but the point is I want to, I want to, I wanted to extend compassion to everyone in writing the book, including the people who make these mistakes, because I mean, there are some people who are truly villainous who do not deserve our compassion, but most of us make mistakes. We're all bound to make mistakes. And so the goal is to figure out how to make fewer of them and not to make the same damn mistake over and over and over again. Listeners are like, Risa, go back, go back, go back. (laughs) The story you actually shared is pretty traumatic. You know, there's a power differential. I'm sure there's an age difference. What was the age split? Oh, he was not much older than I am. So he he was a man and he was he was he had more power than I did in the hierarchy but uh but he he was not much I don't think he's even he may even be a year younger than I am. No, he's 2 years older. That's what it is. And he felt that it was okay and appropriate to tell you that you needed to wear tighter jeans. Yes. And this was not a long time ago. This was pretty recent <laughs> recently. 
which seems strange. It seems really strange. Uh, and it is really strange. So what, what are you going to say? He went so far as to purchase jeans on your behalf. He, like who purchased those? So he those? sent another woman who worked on the team out to purchase the jeans. And to be fair to him, he also purchased jeans for another colleague of mine who was equally unfashionable as I am, who's a man. But he didn't purchase skin-tight jeans for the man. He purchased baggy jeans for the man and, uh, and skin-tight jeans for me. Yeah. I mean, I find the story disturbing on so many levels. And um, in my experience, if someone is doing this, you're probably not the first person to whom he did this. Yes. Um, it's usually been happening for yes. years. Um, people in the office or in the hospital or in the industry usually know it happens, but no one has the difficult conversation. Yeah, and he thinks it's okay because nobody's ever told him it's not okay. Um, and, I mean, now someone has told him <laughs> and he knows it's not okay. But it's astounding that he got to be, you know, a very senior executive at a very well-known tech company, not thinking that that was okay to do. It's weird, isn't it? Hard to imagine. Well, it seems then he was miffed that he couldn't control you via your genes. So then he tried to control you slash gaslight you by talking about your likability yes. and your competence. Yeah. 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 It was really, it was really infuriating. And, and the, you know, what was even more infuriating about that example is that I, when he said to me, have you heard of the competence likability literature. I hadn't actually, I mean, he had read the literature. I had not, I had no idea about it at the time. And he explained, as he was explaining to me that, you know, very often the more, the, the more competent a woman is, the less her colleagues like her, light bulbs were going off in my head. I was like, oh yes, that's really true. That does happen. And it was so my assumption was that he was on my side in this and that he was going to fix the problem for me because he understood the problem so well. And then when he said, so can you be more likable? I was, I was like, what the hell just happened there? Like, and I think he was viewing himself as sort of like a sociologist and not a leader. He was explaining the way the world worked to me, but as a leader, it was his job to make things work better and, and, and not to just sort of accept this bias as something that I had to navigate around, but rather to change the bias. Yeah. I'm wondering if this has been your experience. Um, stories will happen. You'll either be direct or indirect witness to them or the object of them. And you can tell friends, you can tell trusted colleagues, and they'll be like, that's horrible. I can't believe that happened. And then it goes away. And there's something about the currency of writing yes. and putting it in writing. People will be like, Risa, I had no idea that happened. Yeah. I'm like, remember we talked about it. And they're like, yeah, but I didn't realize. So I am louding, I want to use the word right there, loud, you're putting it in writing because I actually think only by publishing articles, putting it in a book, and then talking about it, people can read it on a page. Does it really have the gravitas, the depth, the impact 
um, that hopefully these stories will have. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing about writing a story is that you have time to edit it. Like when you tell the story, you c- there's so many details that, that one moves past quickly. Or, or, you know, you don't explain it in a way that is cl- that is clear to the other person. And And the nice thing about writing is that it forces one to get inside one's own head. And then when you edit, it forces you to get back out of your own head. And, uh, and, and stories get much better when you, I think, for me anyway, stories get much better when I write them than when I tell them. Even, you know, when, I, when this happened at the time, I remember I called up my college roommate to talk to her about it. When I called her and talked to her about what had happened, she was sort of horrified, but I was so fixated at the time on when I got the genes on trying to make the best of this job and trying to find something good in the feedback, I said, well, maybe he's just trying to help me be more fashionable, like dress better at work. And I know I'm not a very good dresser. And she, she tried to tell me at the time that I was being ridiculous, but it actually took writing the book to make me understand just how, how ridiculous that he was being and how gaslit I was. There's a book that's come out called White Women that talks about how white women actually um, hold up some of the principles of racism and other isms in the workplace. And one of the explanations is this culture of nice. Yes. We're sort of taught, (laughs) we're socialized to be nice. And, you know, our first reaction is, no, 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 I'm sure. I mean, that was very generous of you to have a a, a positive interpretation of what he did. (laughs) It was, it was ridiculous, actually. It was like, it was, it was what I call in radical candor, I would call that ruinous empathy. Uh, I, I was... I was going too far uh, in terms of nice culture. And, and nice culture is something, as a white woman raised in the South in particular, I really struggled with. And I think that was a big, that has been a big part of my journey, both as a leader and as, as a writer. Uh, Virginia Woolf said that a, a woman's job is to kill the angel in the house, that, <laughs> where, that expectation of being overly nice. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes the angel has just left the house and entered the office or the hospital. And it's really important to question that because very often that excessive niceness, you are upholding these beliefs or just patterns of thought, if not really a belief, these biases that are holding you back and also holding other people back. And, uh, and one of the things when I, an early draft of this book, it was way too centered around my experiences as a white woman. And I had to really work hard to try to come up with a, uh, with a framework that would build solidarity across uh, all, all people who've been underrepresented for any reason. Times Up Healthcare uh, was formed around the time of Times Up Hollywood, Times Up Advertisement, etc. And the movement came out of the Me Too stories. And the story you just shared is a complete Me Too story. And it reminds me, we when we were forming the organization and about to have a launch, uh, a story was shared with us about someone that worked in the drug rep uh, industry, who um, she would make visits to some physician's office. And uh, he uh, would call it 
Thong Thursday or Thong Tuesday, but basically he insisted that the rep- reps would wear thongs. The doctor would. Um, and then they would have to, sh- yeah, show their thongs. So, you know, um, I just think that these patterns of behavior, and this is sort of what you and I started with before we pressed record, it's in every industry. And, you know, you generally on these talks are talking about radical candor and radical candor pieces are injected into just work. But I'm really glad that we started with just work. And, you know, let's continue on with that. Um, Am I right that you are going to retitle it Radical Respect? Yes, that is my intention. Although you can give me some feedback and tell me uh, if if I should. The reason is that just work as a title, I think just didn't work. A lot of people thought I was telling them to just work all the time, and that that was not what I was trying to say. The other the other piece of feedback I got about the book after it came out that really surprised me was that I th- I mean I thought the justice in just work was clear, and I also thought that. Everybody thought justice was – everybody had very positive associations with the word justice. And I learned that a lot of people don't have positive associations with the word justice. Um, and a lot of people on both – on all sides of the of the political spectrum don't have positive associations with that word. So, so those are the two reasons why I'm changing the title. I don't know. What do you think? So I actually think it's beautiful because I think, first of all, it matches radical candor, radical respect. It's sort of as good for branding and your education platform. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the third reason. <laughs> and moreover, and I want to use the word moreover there, and it actually is, I think, an inclusive title that speaks more accurate to the content of the book. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I'm glad you like it. My, my publisher will be glad too, because I keep changing my mind about it every five minutes. Yeah. I want to continue on on this, you know, that you are writing this book about bullying and about being an upstander in the workplace as a white woman, but you've brought in partners, collaborators, and the eight part podcast that I listened to podcast, just work eight episodes with Ernest Adams. And it seemed that it was a working almost like a working meeting, except it was a working podcast of your meetings to edit the book that he was helping edit. Yes. You know, and it's funny, I didn't start out thinking I was going to do a total rewrite of the book. What I, what, what Ernest and I talked about in the very beginning was it's, this book exists. So we'll just read a couple of pages from the book and talk about it every, every week. And when I started reading and we started talking, I realized that I needed to rewrite the book, <laughs> that, that it was, it was, there were some ideas in the book that were, that needed updating. For example, this rule book for respect was not going to work. We need space for a conversation around notions of prejudice. And Ernest really convinced me of that. But also it was what made me realize I had sometimes just lost my voice in this sort of inner conflict I was having with myself, which is I have to write the book, but or I'm not allowed to write the book. And I think talking to Ernest really liberated me from that. And that's the benefit right there of solidarity across difference. Uh, Ernest is a gay black man. I'm a straight white woman. And it was so helpful to talk about bias, prejudice, and bullying from his point of view as well as from my point of view and what we can do about these things. You, in one of the recent podcasts I listened, talked about how words matter. And you talked about sloppy side metaphors. And I'm wondering if you can share with the listeners what that's all about. 
Yeah, so sloppy site metaphors are using words like see when what I mean is understand or notice. And the reason why that's a problem is that people who are blind obviously can understand or notice. And when we use sloppy site metaphors, it it becomes ableist. And I really cared about that because I care about words. Words matter. I wanted to use the right words. I also cared, so I cared about it sort of at an intellectual level. I also cared about that at an emotional level because one of the people who was helping me to edit the book is a historian named Zach Shore, who's blind and one of the clearest thinkers I've ever met. And so I, I didn't want to use words that that were going to be offensive or harmful to Zach in any way or to anyone. And so I thought I got it. I thought I understood it. I thought I had fixed it. And right before I handed the book in to my editor, I did a quick search of the book for the word C. And in a 350-page book, I had used sloppy sight metaphors. Guess how many times? I know the answer. You know the answer. 99 times. <laughs> and so to me, I, I told that story because I think that one of the things that is difficult about changing these biases that we have are, is that these are deeply ingrained patterns of speech, patterns of thought. And we can, we're, as human beings, we're pattern makers, and we can change patterns when we find a pattern doesn't serve us. But it takes a lot of persistence. And I think that in, in, this, in this moment in time, we're sort of impatient and fed up with ourselves and other people. And so what I hope that Just Work will do, well, now Radical Respect, will do is, is help people extend themselves some grace and extend other people grace, not to ignore problems, but to be both persistent uh, and patient with ourselves and others as we correct these patterns. Because it, it's going to take, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. And for listeners who are wondering about the C, it's not the letter C, it's the word C, S-E-E. Yes. Hence what Kim was describing about sight. What are some other examples that might come to mind about the sloppy side metaphors? Another one is blind spot, actually, which which we use all the time. And it's, you know, it's not a blind spot. It's something I'm unaware of. Uh, and uh, there, there are others that are um, and this is a complicated one uh, on on multiple dimensions. But when people say I am colorblind, when in particular when white people say I am colorblind, uh, a it's a sloppy sight metaphor, and b what it really means is I refuse to notice the racism all around me very often, <laughs> and uh, and so those are those are some other examples of of ways in which. Uh, metaphors uh, become become reinforcers of biases. Yeah. I think some others that came to mind for me, and it was discussed in the episode you were in, was low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, calling uh, the kettle black. Yes. Uh, blacklisting. Yes. Things like this. Yes. Yes. Those are all, uh, all uh, I mean, there's, yes, those are all important ones. You've talked about empathy and grace, and you've written and spoken about um, 
approaching the bully with empathy. And, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that some of the books and some of what you're writing and some of what interests you and what you talk to audiences about is a message that you've been telling yourself and a message that you're actually saying because of how people have judged you and what they've critically said to you as a leader. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I have found with bullying, as Bob Sutton says in his wonderful book, uh, the, the No Asshole Rule, uh, there are bona fide assholes and there are temporary assholes. <laughs> and you want to be able to distinguish between the two because you want to avoid the bona fide assholes. But but you want to work with uh, and improve your relationship with the temporary assholes. And so I think in, in terms of bullying, it's really important to sort of figure out what's going on. And I, I recommend responding to bullying with a you statement, not an I statement. And I learned this from my daughter when she was in third grade. She, she said she was getting bullied on the playground. And I said to her, tell this kid, I feel sad when you blah, blah, blah. And she banged her fist on the table. And she said, mom, they are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? And so I agreed. That was that was a good point. So a you statement, you can't talk to me like that. Or a you question, what is going on for you here? Because sometimes a person is bullying you. They don't even realize what they're doing. They're hungry. They're they're tired. You know, who knows what's going on? Some that they they have. A, a major health concern with one with someone they love, and all of those things can make us behave not at our worst. So, so you don't have to take it, but you wanna you wanna offer the person some compassionate feedback, like that this behavior is not okay, uh, and and often people will will improve. I, I think the for. For the bona fide bullies, there need to be consequences for the, for the behavior. Otherwise, it won't change. And even for those who are sort of temporarily bullies, often w when a person gets power for the first time, they start to behave in a bullying way without even realizing what they're doing. And, and it is important if that person doesn't want to to become a bully to A, create consequences and B, create some feedback so that they can change their behavior. How personally do you take the comments, the write-ins, the pushback, the accusations? I really want to learn from feedback. And, you know, sometimes I even take it too far as with the tight jeans example. But I really always try to, I, I, I'm human, so sometimes I have an emotional reaction and I feel defensive or I feel angry. And so I really try to take a step back and to, to figure out if I agree with the feedback. First of all, to look for some aspect of the feedback that I do agree with, just to prove to myself and to the other person that I'm not shut down to the feedback. And then I try to really think about whether this is something that that is useful to me and that I can agree with or not. So I'll give you another example on that podcast and also in in for the for radical candor I read the audiobook aloud. And in both cases I got an enormous amount of feedback that people hated, you know what I'm going to say, people hated the sound of my voice. I mean 
they really hated the sound of my voice. And and they would write in and they would say, she's arrogant that she read this herself. And, um, and why won't she lower, the, you know, essentially the feedback was, why won't she lower her voice? And I thought about this and I realized a couple of things that, first of all, there probably is, there probably is some voice training I could do if my whole if I were going to become sort of a, a professional voice. But I'm I'm more of a writer than a talker, so I'm not sure it's worth it to me to invest in that. But second of all, there was also more than a little bias in the feedback. Like, why is a woman telling me about leadership, and why is this woman not trying to? make her voice really low so she sounds like a man. Uh, and and I wasn't, I definitely wasn't going to do that. I mean, I'll give you another example of a time when I got feedback that I did take that I kind of regret taking. So one of the, one of the biases that I touched on lightly in the book, but, but not too much, is geographical biases. So I was raised in the South. I was raised in Memphis. And when I got to college, I got a lot of feedback, sort of explicit and implicit, that my Southern accent made me sound stupid. And I changed it. And I wish I hadn't because my it's a ridiculous bias. Uh, and uh, But anyway, so there you go. So I decided, okay, I'm going to keep my high voice. Yeah. I really appreciate your honesty and sharing. I think this is helpful to explain the background to, to your writings, but also to the audience to really get to know you a bit. You famously uh, share a story that Sheryl Sandberg took you into the office after a presentation and spoke to you uh, about your use of verbal crutches, um. And then I, I was wondering if you could walk us through what you did to stop saying um. Sure. So so the first thing I did was what she recommended that I do, which is go visit a speech coach. Uh, it was SMP Communications is the name of the firm, but there's a lot of great speech coaches out there. And... I talked to, I watched recordings of myself talking and giving presentations. Really painful. <laughs> it's awful. And because you know what? The thing, the thing that's hard about that feedback about the sound of my voice is that I hate the sound of my voice, of course. But I think everybody does when they hear themselves recorded. And I even more hate watching myself on video. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, whenever I'm on Zoom, I turn off hide, uh, uh, I turn on hide self view. So anyway, I watched this and I learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. So part of it is awareness, but awareness without tools just breeds despair. And so they talked to me about things I could do specific small things I could do. And one of them was when I gave presentations, they forced me to choose several moments where I stopped talking and counted to six. Six seconds, I just did it. And I probably counted too fast. It's a long time. It's a long, long time. And it's but just the discipline of doing that and not jumping in, because what what the speech coach explained to me is that I was uncomfortable with silence and I needed to get more comfortable with silence. And that has helped me in a million different ways. Love that. 
You fall into a group of white women authors that talk about the workplace, leadership, difficult conversations, feedback. You know, I think of Sheila Heen, Amy Gallo, Amy Edmondson, Brene Brown. What would you say makes your books, your work, Radical Candor, Radical Respect different? The thing that I bring to the table is... First of all, I my whole business career was one giant plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. And and I have written a bunch of novels and I read almost only novels. And I, I think fiction is such a great way to sort of hook into people's imagination. It's a great way to learn. And so I think that what I bring to the table is the experience of writing fiction, uh, but also the experience of the nitty gritty experience of having a whole bunch of of operating roles, not operating in your sense of the the word, but uh, uh, sort of nitty gritty sales operations, business operations, CEO roles. And I, I think that um, that is that is useful. The, most people who have been a CEO or, or have had uh, a, a big operating role have no interest in writing. And most people who love to write would have no interest in having, having an, a, an executive role at a, at a big company. So I think, I think that's the thing that's different. Yeah. I want to circle us back to what you started our episode with talking about you decided you had to speak, you had to use your voice because of someone junior to you was expressing what had happened to her in the workplace. And I think there are real reasons why, number one, we may not speak, we may not speak up. And what I've seen in medicine uh, is um, there are consequences. There are real negative consequences that happen uh, when you're the whistleblower, when you speak up, when you call out the injustice, when you point out things, when you upstand in the moment, all these things that we're supposed to do, all the things that would help the work culture be safer, more equitable, more respectful, it's difficult. And yet we know it's important. So I'm wondering, um, in terms of your voice, you know, you have been using your voice, the written word, the spoken word, but when did you first realize you had it? And when did you really start using it? I realized that I had it perhaps in also in that moment uh, in the model United Nations. I realized I could, you know, I could actually uh, have an impact. The, the question then is how to make sure you have a good impact and not a bad impact. And I think a really important moment for me and my voice came when I was on a panel with Sarah Kunst. And I was talking to her about what I was going to advise women how to succeed in their in their career. And she thought I was giving bad advice. And she was right, by the way. And she looked at me and she said, you know what the problem here is, Kim? And I said, no, what is it? And she said, the problem is that people will listen to you. <laughs> and that was like, uh, and I had spent you know, 45 years at that point thinking the problem was that people wouldn't listen to me. And now I realized, oh, people are listening to me and I better make sure I'm right, you know. (laughs) And I think that was, for me, that was like a really important moment. It was, I, I sort of 
did the same thing you just did uh, on the screen. You sort of uh, sat back and I was like, oh boy, now I got to rethink a whole lot of things. Yeah, that was a big aha. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really important to realize that you have a voice and it's also really important to realize that you may be wrong and that people may be listening to you anyway. And, uh, and, and so I, I really tried to address that with Just Work. The Risa Wrap-Up. Many, many thanks to Kim Scott for joining me in conversation. And Kim, thank you so much for being open, for being honest, for being candid, for sharing stories, stories that quite honestly are painful. They're painful to hear and um, even more painful for you to have specifically, personally witnessed. Audience, as you know, I believe that what happens in one specialty, one industry, one workplace is what's happening in others. There is so much in common, uh, bullying, bias, uh, difficult conversations, feedback, all of it. And we're here for all of it. Kim, thank you. Audience, check out her books and keep watching this space. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>